we talk about giving thanks and praise to the Lord, we have to understand that the Hebrew, when it uses the word praise, there's seven different words that are used and have different meanings. The first one is found in Psalm 50, 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordered his conversation right will I show the salvation of God. He that offereth praise. Now that word praise there is todah in the Hebrew. It means to extend the hands in thanksgiving. Todah. Whoso offereth praise, his hands extended. That's the first form of praise in the Hebrew language. The second one is found in Psalm 107. First of all, in verse 8, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 15, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. And 21 and 31, the same thing. That word is yada. It means to worship with extended hands, to throw out the hands enjoying God. Lord, I just praise you. Lord, I just bless you. Now, uh-oh, we're getting awful radical here, aren't we? Hang on now, I'm not talking about something that's out of anywhere but the word of God. The first one is to raise your hands. The second one is to do it like this, to really, Lord, I praise you, Lord, I thank you, Lord, I bless you. That's what the word Yadah means in the Hebrew. I didn't think that up. You know, some people say that, I just think that's a bunch of foolish radicalism. I just think it's just, you know, they've gone way overboard in their praise. You don't see that in the New Testament. You don't need to go to the New Testament for it. David was the one who was causing praise in the temple before God. The Jews knew how to worship God. The third one is found in 1 Chronicles, the 16th chapter, verse 36. Blessed be the God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Now that word, this time in 1 Chronicles, is halal. Halal. And it means to be vigorously excited, to laud, to boast, to rave, to celebrate. Done with a loud voice. First Chronicles 16.36 Blessed be the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said amen. And they praised the Lord. How did they praise the Lord? How loud? To be vigorously excited, to laud, boast, rave, to celebrate. This type of praise is done with a loud voice. That wasn't it. That was not that loud. The next one is found in Psalm 21.13. Now, I'm sure as we're going along here, you've all experienced these types of praise yourself. Private devotions, public worship, praise. Psalm 21.13. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so will we sing and praise thy power. So will we sing and praise thy power. That word for praise is zamar. It means to pluck the strings of an instrument to praise with song. He said they're going to sing and that while they're singing they're going to be playing instruments. No, no. But the children of Israel had instrumentalists who were trained to play instruments. But I, I, what I'm saying is in, in some churches today they just say they don't want any instruments. No, not scriptural to have instruments. But when the Hebrew children uh, rejoice and praise God, they used instruments. They had tambourines, and David, of course, played the harp, and they had all different types of instruments of praise for the Lord. Then Judges 5 2. 
Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. Uh, I should actually go back. It says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the sons of Abinoam, on the day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. Uh, that word praise in that case in the Old Testament is barak. And it means to bless, to declare God the origin of power for success, prosperity, and fertility, and be still. The next one is in Psalm 100, verse 4. Now, by the way, this is scriptural praise. How do you, how do you honor the Lord? Best way to worship the Lord and to honor is to honor and to honor the Lord is to obey the Lord. And like I told you, I had a difficult time having to learn how to clap my hands years ago because Baptists don't clap their hands. But somebody showed me the verse that says, "Clap your hands, O ye people! Shout unto God with the voice of triumph." And I thought, "Oh, that's that's hard." And I kept looking at the Word, and I had to finally say, "What am I going to do? Am I going to do what I feel like doing, or am I going to do what the Word says?" So I got obedient. Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. Tehillah. Tehillah. The Hebrew. And it means the word for singing in the spirit, or singing psalms. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Singing in the spirit. Or singing psalms. And the last one is found in Psalm 63 3. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. It's another word in the Hebrew, Shabbat. And it means to commend, to address in a loud tone, or to shout. Not whisper. Shout. These are the seven Hebrew words for praise in the Old Testament. Raising of the hands, not only raising the hands, but then thrusting them forth, extending them out to the Lord, vigorously excited to laud, to boast, to rave, to celebrate. They sound like you're getting excited now, doesn't it, huh? Pluck the strings of an instrument to praise with song, to bless, to declare God the origin of power for success, prosperity, fertility, and be still. There are times when you worship the Lord by being still. Singing in the spirit or singing psalms, then address in a loud tone or to shout. It's a good thing. Then to give praise unto God. It's a good thing. Good thing for God to Why is it good? Because it's it's good for us. First of all, it exalts the Lord. I want to tell you something. When I see a Christian going around looking like he's stepping on their lower lip, it's a lousy advertisement. When I see some people who call themselves Christians, I almost want to go if there's an inoculation for it, I want it. There are some people that look like they've had alum in their mouth all day and they go around with their mouth all puckered up and they just look so sad and so depressed and so discouraged. Think, dear God, redeem me from whatever it is that they might have to caught. The Lord wants us to be joyful, not based upon his circumstances, but when we are praising the Lord, it exalts him. When we're talking about the goodness of the Lord and giving thanks for the Lord to the Lord, 
and thanking God before others. I remember, you know, it's amazing I, as I look back. I, nobody sat down and taught me these things, but when I got saved and I went back to work, anybody that worked around me got into trouble, got their ears filled because I was always saying, praise the Lord. I said, hey, look what I just found here in the scriptures. I had a little New Testament with me and I'd read it to them out loud. They said, we're not interested in that. I said, man, this is fantastic. So excited about the things of God. And I'd, I'd run up and down, when I was running up and down that warehouse of the, my big heavy load, I'd be singing praises to the Lord. Some of the rest of the guys would be cussing and grunting and groaning like I was before I got saved. But I just knew that I had to praise the Lord. I, I just wanted to know the Lord was with me every moment because I didn't want to get back into what I was in before. And I'll tell you, one of the best ways to stay out of trouble is praise the Lord. And other people began to take notice and watch me very closely. And I told you, when I went to school, one of the worst men in the shop went right out and tried to find out who my pastor was. When he found out, he said, whatever that animal Joe Webb had, that's what I need for my family. I didn't know he said that, but all he heard me do was praise the Lord. Before that, all he heard me do was cuss and swear and tell filthy stories. So you do something that happened. I'll tell you, you can bring people under conviction by praising the Lord. Remember the old Nazarene preacher, Bud Robinson? He couldn't read or write, but for 91 days, all he did on the job was praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for washing away my sins. Thank you for making me be a child of God. In 91 days, 91 people accepted Christ that were around him. How many of you know there aren't too many praising Christians today? Old and good, solid, stable, sober, sober, just, upright Christians, but not very many praising Christians. Scripture says, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, Rejoice again in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Uh, let me just give you an example. What happens when you hear somebody begin to praise and give thanks for a doctor in the area? I go over to Florida North Hospital and, and I go up to someone and I say, do you know a good gynecologist? Well, all I know is all the nurses go to this doctor. Boy, the food must be good if all the nurses go because the nurses know all the dirt. They know all the problems. They know all the weak areas. They know all the... All the nurses in this hospital that I know of go to this particular doctor. Well, you see, what, what are they doing? They're exalting. They're praising. They're giving... They're lauding that doctor and the end result is people are drawn to that doctor. Why do you think they have advertisements all the time on television about a restaurant or a product or a book or something? When they exalt and give praise and honor to that particular place or, or item, people begin to be attracted to that thing. That's why whenever you see some famous celebrity come on the Today Show, you just know, oh, they've written a book. Why? They want everybody to be able to hear it and have that book lauded and praised a little bit. And that's why it's good for God's people to praise the Lord. How else are they going to know that we belong to the Lord if we don't praise the Lord? They'll see your good works and it'll glorify your Father, which is in heaven. How are they going to know how to give thanks to the Father if you don't have people look away from you and look to the Lord? Whenever you advertise something, it begins to create a desire and establishes a value on how many of you have gone to sales and you look at something and you say, how much is it? They'll say a thousand dollars. This is you, God. Then somebody will come up and they'll begin to praise that thing. Oh, this man is so famous and so great. And somebody says, man, I'll be glad to buy that. Let me, can I get two of them? No, no, they're very rare. You only have one. Oh, well, uh, let, me, let me have it then. They begin to fight over that thing. Everybody remember the story of the violinist? The man in the sale trying to sell this old violin. He couldn't sell it, couldn't sell it. 
Finally, this old man shuffled up in the back and he sat down and tuned it up a little bit and began to play it. Both of the place began to go up and up and up in the auction for that old violin. Touch of the master's hand. So if the master's hand has touched us, then we ought to be in tune to be able to the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is when we talk about praising the Lord, he says it's good for us, not, not good for God, but it's good for us because it benefits us when we praise the Lord. Scripture says in Psalm 30:31, we should praise the Lord because praise is coupling, praise is right, praise is suitable for believers. I think that for a Christian to go through life without praising the Lord every day is a dishonor because they're denying the reality of what God's done in their life. But I'm talking about praise now. I'm not talking about, well, thank you, Lord, praise the Lord. Lord bless this food to our body. The little eccentric headache phrase. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we really get excited and praise the Lord and rejoice in the Lord every day. Look at Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter. It, it benefits us. I'm going to start with verse 1 and read all the way through. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against me from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be the Hazazontamar, which is in Gedei. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. The Judah gathered themselves together to ask of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? What was he doing? He was reminding himself. He did not tell God that God knew that. He was reminding himself who God really is, and we need to do that. That's why Larry Leeson, when we begin to praise the Lord, we need to say, Lord, you are my sanctification. You are my righteousness. You are my healer. You are my peace. You are my source. You are my banner. You are my shepherd. All these things. Lord, that's what you are to me, and I just thank you for that. That's what Jehoshaphat was doing here. Verse 7, Art thou not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? They dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. See what he did? He, he began to claim the promise that God had made to Solomon. Or that God had made to the nation of Israel, actually. That whatever they called, that he would answer. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade. And when they came out of the land of Egypt, and they turned from them and destroyed them not, behold, I say, how they reward us to come and cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, for our eyes are upon thee. What did the word of God say for believers? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jehoshaphat 
had learned the secret that God told us we're supposed to have to look unto Jesus, the author of the He said, I order upon thee, not upon the circumstances, not upon the armies that are coming against us, not upon the numerical differences that are here, our eyes upon thee. And may I just say to you, and all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children, and upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, Benaniah, the son of Jael, Jael, boy, some of these names. Hope the Lord gives us a better tongue when we get to heaven. The son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Now they had been praising the Lord, looking to the Lord, seeking God's face, fasting and praying, and the Spirit of the Lord came in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Whoa, all of a sudden you're in the majority, aren't you? Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. God said, now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time where they're going to be and tell you exactly where to hit them. Take care of this. Right? He didn't say hit them, though. Look what he said there in verse 17. And ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go not out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head, and with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Oh, with a loud voice. That must be Shabbat, huh? With a loud voice. Is that what it says it? There's another one in there, too, where it talks about with a loud voice. The Lord to rave, to celebrate, with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to pray, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were sick. Another translation said they began to fight amongst themselves. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. When they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked under the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth. And what? None escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, and there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah unto this day. 
And they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. When God tells us to rejoice and to praise Him, it's for our benefit. You imagine the destruction that would have taken place had they not begun to praise the Lord as the Lord had instructed them to just believe Him and to stand and see the salvation of the Lord? Look in Acts the 16th chapter, verses 25 and 26. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's band rose. How many killed Paul and Silas had a very easy cry and wept and complained and had a pity party in the prison? And praise the Lord, and the prison was shaken down. When God tells us to do this, to praise Him, it's for our benefit. He wants to bless us. For obedience and will bless us. And I want to tell you a copy of an eternal pattern when we praise the Lord. Isaiah, in the sixth chapter, he went into the temple and he said, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train filled the temple. And the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. In the Old Testament, and before there was ever an earth created, the angels, the archangels, the cherubim, and the seraphim are praising God. And in Revelation, the fifth chapter, I want you to see that it's going to be the same pattern in eternity. Revelation chapter 5, in verse 6. I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung the new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God out by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, that we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne of the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which was in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea. All that are in them heard, I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb forever and ever. I want to tell you something. If you aren't if you aren't willing to praise the Lord, if you aren't anxious and desirable and desirous of praising the Lord, you're going to be miserable in heaven. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be praising the Lord throughout eternity. If you don't like music, you're going to be just absolutely miserable in heaven because there's going to be singing in heaven all the time. It's good for God's people to praise the Lord. It's a good thing for God's people to praise the Lord. And I want to encourage you. When you feel down and discouraged, just stop and say with David, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. Begin to put your hope in the Lord. Begin to say, Lord, I don't, I'm not going to look at the circumstances. I'm not going to look at all the Moab, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and the Mount Seir, and all of them that are around me. I'm not going to look at all the circumstances. I'm just going to, in the midst, I'm going to look up and I'm going to praise you. They can get all around me, they can surround me, but they can't block the overhead. I'm going to look to you, Lord, and I'm going to thank you ahead of time. You have the answer. He promised that you'd never leave us for forsake us. 
He promised that you'd not leave us orphans. He promised if we call upon you, you'd answer us. He promised if we needed wisdom, you'd give it to us. Lord, I just thank you that you are made unto me wisdom. I thank you that you are made unto me my security. Give the praise the Lord. And I'll tell you, before long you'll find yourself, you put your hands in your pocket, you won't be able to say a word. Bless God, hallelujah. That's promise. Keep your praise. It's for us today. Those things are written for us as an example. Now the scripture says the Old Testament is written to us as an example. Now if they jumped around and raised their hand and praised the Lord and went, Lord, I just bless you and praise you and even shouted once in a while, why do some of us stand around with our hands in our pocket for fear we might clap? That was our example. That we might do those things that are pleasing in God's sight. Bible says it's good for God's people to be afflicted. How many of you know that the church is stronger today in nations where they're under tremendous pressure and under constant threat of death than it is even here in the United States? Someone was just saying the other day that over in Russia, they couldn't care less about being entertained or how many people can dance before the Lord or how much time they can play and raise their hand. They want people to come to them and teach them the word, get into the word, and then spend hours and hours and hours in prayer seeking God's face and praying for their government, praying for their families, and praying for their safety, and praying that they might get an outreach to be able to declare the gospel. We don't like to have that happen to us, the afflicted, but the Bible says that it's good for God's people to be afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 71. Psalm 119. Verse 71, David said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. In verse 67, go back to verse 67, and you see, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Paul says something, there's nothing more purifying to a Christian than to go through a time of persecution or affliction and struggle. You begin to realize how totally helpless we are without the Lord's help. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were told that they were, didn't have long to live because of cancer. They said, you know, I, I just wish it was something I could get a hold of. I said, yes. In fact, one of them says, that this one man that I was talking to had uh, his heart fibrillated. He's in his 70s, and his heart fibrillated. And he said, oh, I'm going to be fine. I said, now let's really get on. Let's look at me. I said, you have no control over that whatsoever. Oh, I'm going to take care of it. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll believe you. You reach down, grab your bootstraps, and lift yourself two feet off the floor for about five seconds, and I'll believe that you can take care of this. He looked at me and grinned. I said, you know that every breath you breathe is a gift from God. And God's given you every opportunity to come to him. But I said, you are in the paralysis of analysis. You keep just thinking, well, I don't know about this, I don't know about that. And I have witnessed and prayed and talked to that man and sat down and eaten lunch with that man time and time again talking to him about what it means to commit himself to Jesus Christ. He has all these philosophical questions. When I answer for him, he says, well, I never thought about that answer before. I never heard it like that before. Now, that really clears that up. And then he gets over to I said, I said, you're just trying to hedge all around the fact that you need to repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Lord You can tell you you've got cancer. But we don't like these things. We don't like these things that draw us or drive us to the Lord all the harder. We would like for things to go smoothly. God's word tells us, in spite of that fact, that it's good for us to be afflicted. Psalm, that same chapter, verse 75, verse 75, look at what it says. 
I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Now that word there, afflicted, actually means diminished or lowered or decreased me or put me down, uh, brought me to a place of realization of how, uh, how powerless I really am. That's found over in Psalm 107 and verse 39. Uh, the result of affliction, it says they are diminished or diminished or decreased and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. About the time we think we're really wagging, that we're the tail wagging the dog instead of the dog, uh, the, instead of the dog wagging the tail, uh, we can get ourselves into trouble. The Lord knows how to bring us down. He said, "If you'll humble yourself, I'll exalt you. You exalt yourself, I'll humble you. I'll bring you down. I'll bring affliction. I'll bring pressure to, to bear on you and show you that you cannot do it yourself." Now, that word affliction has has many different applications in the Scripture. It's used the same word is used for bad, evil, adversity, calamity, grief, sorrow. That word affliction never has the connotation of sin. God's not talking about sin coming against us. He's talking about calamities. He's talking about adversities, grief, sorrow, evil things that come against us. It almost refers more to the fruit of sin. It's the, the principle of, of sowing and reaping and confirming the law of sowing and reaping. Now, every time in the scripture, it's not a case of sowing and reaping. But in many cases, it is. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But it isn't always true. That's why when somebody gets sick, you don't always go up to them and say, How aware have you sinned? Job never sinned. God used Job to teach us a tremendous lesson, and that lesson is you don't question God. As for God, his way is perfect. Even though you slay me, Lord, I'll still trust you. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's that's a principle we learn from Job. And then to see that in the end, God is just and God will reward us accordingly. But the principle here is the confirming of the law of sowing and reaping. And of the 177 times that this word, affliction, is used in the scripture, only five or six times does it refer to physical sickness. Most of the time it's talking about outward affliction that comes against us. Now this, I just want us to do a little study about the word affliction on different verses here because if it's good for us, we need to understand a little bit more about it. First of all, God will determine in the life of the believer how much affliction we take, have to take. You know, the scripture says in Corinthians, there hath no temptation or trial or test taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is what? Faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape so that you can bear it. God will make that way of escape. And I've, I've tried to teach you time and time again, when you're going through times of affliction and testing and trials, don't look at the affliction. Look at the possibility and the doorway that God's going to open up to allow you a release from that persecution, that, that tribulation, that affliction that comes against you. God determines the length of the affliction that comes upon you as his, first, as his child. Look in Genesis, the 15th chapter. When the promise of what went to Abram, Concerning the nation of Israel later on, God gave a timetable in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them. How long? Four hundred years. God said, That's how long you're going to. How many of you know how long they were in Egypt? Four hundred years. And see, this is what makes this book supernatural. God said it way ahead of time before they ever went to Egypt. He 
told them how long they're going to be there. And he says, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with what? Great substance. They came out with much gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. God said that they're going to go through this time of affliction in this land. And he said, how long did they be there? And that he'd bring them, out, bring them out again. And then in Numbers, the 14th chapter, beginning with verse 32. When the children of Israel refused to go into the promised land, and God had to judge them and afflict them, he says, but as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness, how long? Forty years. How many of you know they weren't there 39 years, they weren't there 41 years? They were there 40 years, and then God brought them out again. And bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Forty years. One year for each day that they were in the, in the land, searching out the land. Then in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, you know, as you read these things, you begin to realize how marvelous our God really is. Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. One year every seven. For 490 years they cultivated the land every year and every year and every year. So God says, no, let the land rest one year. And they didn't do it. Now how many of you know that if they did it for 400 and some years, some, a lot of people said, God couldn't care less. I mean, everybody says God's going to judge us. I mean, after all, here we've been doing it for 400 and some years and God hasn't judged us. That just goes to prove that God doesn't care. God says, well, now you wouldn't give the land to rest, so I'll take you out of the land for 70 years and I'll give it its 70 years of rest. It'll have its 70 Sabbaths all in one row. God says, I'm going to put you in the land, out of the land for 70 years, and I'm going to let it rest. Nobody else is going to come in and plant it. Nobody else is going to cultivate it whatsoever. For 70 years, you're going to be out of it, and then I'll bring you back. God did that very thing. Luke 22, into verse 31. Remember when Peter was saying, oh, I'll, I'll not, where was it? I, he said that he would not fail the Lord. The Lord said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. But the Lord said there in verse 31, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now let me tell you that God doesn't go around looking for opportunities to hurt us, to afflict us, to give us problems. He gets no pleasure out of this whatsoever. I want you to see that in Lamentations the third chapter and verse 31. 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Now let me read that to you out of the Living Bible. For the Lord will not abandon him forever, although God gives him grief, yet he will, he will show compassion to Accord to them according to the greatness of his loving kindness. For, for he does not enjoy afflicting men and causing sorrow. 
When God sees that there's a need in our lives to correct, he will allow these things to come into our life to correct things in our lives, to strengthen us, to turn us around, to make us be what he wants to be, but he doesn't enjoy doing it. Let me give you an example. How many of you as parents sit back and say, I have got to just find the first chance I can to beat the socks off my kid again? I just, I just got to, I'm going to watch him just as close as I get a chance. Oh, man, I can hardly wait. I want to get a chance. You know, that is the way it is. But how many of you know, if you're a good parent, when you're out in public somewhere, you've got your, you may be talking to someone or looking at someone, but all the time in your mind is, where's my child? I want to make sure my child's doing what my child's supposed to be doing. I have a responsibility to keep that child in. If you've told the child what to do and he doesn't do it, you come over and you give him a stern warning. If that doesn't work, then you begin to apply it, not because you want to, but because you know it's for their good. That's what the Lord is saying here. He doesn't enjoy afflicting his children. But if he needs to, I've said it before, I say it again, he sent a fish after Jonah, and he sent a rooster after Peter, and he hasn't closed down either one of those hatcheries yet. He knows exactly what it takes to get us where our goat's tied. He knows exactly what it's going to take for you and me to push our button and to get our attention. Now, he may find, he may know that he can do something with you, allow something to happen in your life that will get your attention that wouldn't get my attention at all. But he knows exactly what has to do. Now, the, the next thing I want you to know, just for your encouragement, is that it's promised that the saints are going to have afflictions. Isn't that wonderful? John sixteen thirty three. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now let me tell you again what the Latin word tribulum means. It means a threshing sledge which separates grain from the straw. The Greek calypsis means pressing together, pressure, like squeezing grapes for wine to come out or squeezing olives for the oil to come out. It means putting pressure on something. And Jesus said, in the world you're going to have pressure. In the world, you're going to be threshed. You're going to feel like you've been through a threshing machine. Isn't that wonderful? Anybody want to raise their hands and thank the Lord for that? How many of you know he said, you'll not give up anything in this life, but what you'll receive back a hundredfold in this life with tribulations plus eternal life. Any way you want to look at it, God tells us that no matter how much we confess positively, how much we claim, name it and claim it, that we're still going to have tribulations in this world. That's not something negative. Jesus says that there's a positive aspect to it. Acts, the 14th chapter. These are promises to us. How many of you have memorized these promises? Acts 14, 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. How many of you like to have an evangelist come and preach that to you? That's what he came back and he said, now I'm going to establish you and let you realize, in order for us to get into the kingdom of God, we've got to be prepared for much tribulation, much pressure, much threshing, much squeezing, 1 Thessalonians 3, that no man should be moved, well, let me go back to verse 2, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, 
that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. The Living Bible says that troubles are a part of God's plan for us as Christians. Verse 4, For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and you know. Now some of our positive confession people would say, well, see, they confessed and that's why they got it. No, all the way through the scripture it says that's to be expected. Jesus said if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. Don't think it's strange for the fiery trials that are going to come against you, he said. Expect it. It's going to happen. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his, us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that we have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So God says it's promised to us as believers that we are going to have afflictions in this world. Now I say that because I am so many times now being confronted with the Christians who say, I don't understand it. Since I've become a Christian, since I've really committed my life to Christ, things have just fallen apart. Things have just gotten worse all over. I mean, financially, I mean, every way, everything's just falling apart. I said, well, any time you get to the front of the battlefield, you're going to find that there's problems. If the devil isn't afflicting, you don't worry about it. You're not even on the battlefield. Well, yeah, but I thought things were going to go real nice after I became a Christian. I said, where did you read that? It isn't in the scriptures. God didn't say he was going to give us prosperity and blessings and hope and all the, I mean, uh, prosperity and blessings and rewards financially and all these things materially. He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. He said, I'll go with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He said, I won't leave you orphans. I'll be with you and I'll give you joy and peace. He didn't say happiness necessarily, but joy and peace. It's the joy of the Lord that becomes our strength. And our joy is not based upon our circumstances, it's based upon our relationships. How many of us tonight, if we knew that when we got home, our houses, our furniture, everything we possess, all of our bank accounts would be taken away from us, and tomorrow we'd be out on the street. I read this past week of a, of a lady, she and her husband were in a business in a little town. The same thing happened to this couple that are starting to come to church here the bank that they were in, another banker, I mean another businessman, borrowed a great big loan, took a great big loan out from this bank, and defaulted on the loan, and the bank went under. And the FDIC came in. Well, whenever the FDIC comes in and takes over a bank, uh, if you've got a 30-year loan, well, they won't touch that. But if you've got a promissory note, or if you've got a demand note, they will demand that you pay it immediately. You may have been paying your payments every month for years, but they say, I want it now. Well, this couple couldn't get the money together, and so the bank foreclosed on the FDIC, foreclosed on them and their business, took everything away from them, couldn't get enough out of business, went over, took their house away from them. The woman's husband died, and she sold what little furniture she had left and had to move out into her car and was living in the car night after night, went out trying to find jobs, couldn't find any jobs because she didn't have an address. How many of you know if you don't have an address, people won't hire you today? And she didn't know what to do. And she was sitting and talking one time with a lady. She said, why don't you go to school? I'll bet you can go to the university and start getting some, taking some classes. 
her business was growing and, and she, they were starting to get out of debt and start to get things ready to, to really enjoy life. Here she was, a widow now, with nothing. She went back to school and, and when she was in the university, finishing up her final year, who should get up and speak in the university but the guy that had made that loan in the bank, he was in prison, they were letting out on release time and telling how hard it was for him to be away from his family and he was looking forward so much to be able to get back to his family for the holidays if they were going to let him out or not. And she jumped up in this, in this convocation. She said, well, I don't know. She said, I was so angry. She said, why are you complaining? you still got a family. Why are you complaining? You've had three meals a day and you've got a roof over your head with television and air conditioning. I've been living out of a car because of what you did to the bank. Full of anger. I wonder, what would we do? How would we respond if tomorrow everything were taken away from us? Should we say with Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord? We better be careful what we say because, you know, remember the two disciples came to Jesus with their mother and she said, can they sit on each side of you in your kingdom? And he said, well, are you able to pay the price that I was unwilling to pay? Oh, yes, yes, we can. He says, then you will. You will. Both of them were crucified just like Christ was crucified. I'd be careful what we say. They tell you the afflictions that can come on believers can be severe. I'm not trying to say these things to discourage you. I want us to be realists. I want us to realize that there's going to be a price to be paid in these last days. We have to be able to be willing to say, Lord, it's all yours, regardless what comes. It's all yours. What do I foresee in the days ahead? I foresee that many Christian ministries are going to be put completely under financially. Being afflicted, a real nice, cheery subject like that, isn't it, George? Yeah. And uh, we said Psalm 119, 71 says, It's a good thing for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. In verse 67, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. And in verse 75, he said, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Whenever tests and trials and afflictions and hardships come into the life of a Christian, they are for our good. See, the Lord will withhold no good thing from them that walk uprightly. It may not seem good at the moment, but if God allows it in our lives, we have to thank him for it and know that his ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts, but his ways are perfect. He never makes a mistake, and we thank him for the hard times. If you and I can learn to thank God in the hard times, it becomes very easy to praise Him in the good times. But you see, it's when we're ungrateful and when we grumble. What was the one thing that the Lord told us to learn from the children of Israel in the wilderness? That's right, without murmuring, without grumbling, without disputing, without complaining, because that's why God had to judge the nation of Israel over and over and over again. They were just a bunch of grumblers. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't the fact that their shoes... And, can you imagine having clothes that wouldn't wear out when you're walking around the desert for 40 years? Never having to plant a tree, never having to plant a garden, and always having food every single day? You say, yeah, but for 40 years, the same thing. I mean, fried manna, boiled manna, baked manna. I mean, man, man, they were really getting... He said, don't complain. He said he did that to try them and to test them. The Bible says this is positive. It's a positive thing to, to suffer affliction. It's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord in the midst of our trials and tests. It was when Jonah was going down in the, to the bottom of the mountains in the ocean that he began to praise God. 
and praising God in the midst of that affliction made that large fish see a uh, sick. And he couldn't even digest a, a backslidden preacher. And he, he had to bring him up and throw him out on the shore so he could go on and do what God told him to do. But he praised him in the midst of his affliction. And that's when God began to bring redemption to him. So uh, we said that affliction is bad, something bad or evil or adversity or calamity or grief or sorrow that can come in, not sin. But these are things that can happen in our lives. First of all, we said that God determines the length of when we're going to be afflicted, the length of time. He will set the time. In his due season, things can turn around. Job went through this for months, this whole horrible time he went through, and God said, okay, now it's over with. When it's over with, it's over with, and the Lord restored everything to Job that he'd had before and blessed him, you see. But Job, in the midst of it, never complained except he said, I just wish that I could sit down with the Lord and with, with, with God and talk to him about this. I don't understand this. And afterwards, he realized he didn't have to understand. He just had to believe God. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And then the second thing we said last week was that it brings no, God no pleasure to bring affliction on a person. But first of all, it can be something that we have sown that we're reaping. But secondly, it can be a lesson that we have to learn, even like Job, maybe we haven't done anything wrong, but God is trying to teach us something, bring us through so that when we're recovered, we can strengthen others. If you and I have not gone through an experience, it's very hard to empathize and understand with others that are going through it. Right now, I, you know, I'm not even, it's sub, I mean, it's just automatic to me anymore. When I hear of someone now who's going through a problem with someone that has diabetes or someone that has cancer, I immediately begin, my heart just goes out to them. I realize that once you go through it, you, you know what they're going through, you know what they're feeling, and, and you call them and give them a verse and say, I just want you to know that God loves you today, and he, he's right there, he hasn't forsaken, he knows your address, and, and, and be encouraged in the Lord. Don't look at the circumstances, look to the Lord. I, you know, I couldn't have done that. I probably would have kind of shied away had I not gone through this myself. There's, a, there's a two pastors now that I know of that are going through right now physically what Jeff was going through. Two different pastors. I've gone through hard times in former ministries and difficult times in former ministries. And there's a pastor right now uh, in the area here that, that's going through a difficult time. And to be able to sit down with him and say, I, I know what you're feeling. God is still on the throne. God still is in control. He's going to get glory through this. Don't become discouraged. See? These afflictions, when we go, well, I, you know, in the natural, you say, no, I don't want to go through those afflictions. But afterwards, you see that God can use them to bring honor and glory to his name and to encourage others who are going through the battle. Maybe you don't feel that that's worthwhile, but God says that's the only way we're going to be able to minister to others. The scripture says that Jesus Christ was tempted and tested in all manner, such as we, yet without sin. So he is now a compassionate and an understanding high priest. He, he understood loneliness. He understood rejection. He understood all these things that we go through. And when he was willing to go through it, God highly exalted him now. And I'm sure when we get there, he'll say it was worth it all in that day. I don't know that he'd want to go through it again, but I know that he thanks the Lord, thanks God the Father that he was able to go through it who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame of the scripture says. But God doesn't do it because he gets pleasure out of seeing us suffer. He just knows that it's for our good. And then it's promised that saints are going to suffer. They're going to have afflictions. They're going to have torment. They're going to have trouble. They're going to have trials and testings throughout their life. Now, I want you to know that sometimes these things can be very severe. Again, I don't have to tell you about Job. That was horribly severe. But you know, God even warned. Look at Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. God even gave the children of Israel 
a choice. It's the chapter of blessings and cursings. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you curse me, I mean, if you disobey me, I'll curse you. I want you to notice something here because I have heard the positive name it and claim it and, you know, declare it and grab it or whatever it is. All these new theories, I mean, these, these doctrines that have been coming out. They will tell you that none of these things come from God. Well, let me tell you, indirectly, all these things come from the Lord. Because God had to give Satan permission to touch Job. First of all, he said, you can take everything he has, but don't you touch it. You can touch his flesh, but don't you take his life. Now, God had to give Satan permission to do that. Now, that's not cruelty on the part of God. God is perfecting us, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, where we will let go of all these other crutches and all these other things that we're leaning on and having support us. He'll take away anything that we will depend upon that is not based in him. Let me say that again. God wants to bring you and me to the place where we have nothing else to depend on but him. When we begin to depend on something else, that becomes an idol to us. Look here in Deuteronomy 28, chapter. we won't read it all, but it says in verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And these, all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. Here's that conjunction again. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Then he says, Blessed shalt thou be in the city and in the field and in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of the ground, fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, the flocks of the sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. And when you come in, when you go out, and on, so on and so forth, uh, your enemies will flee before you seven ways, and blessings will be upon your storehouses, and all you set your hands to do and in the land that the Lord God giveth thee. The Lord shall st establish thee, verse 9, and holy people unto himself as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. All the people of the earth shall be afraid of you. The Lord will make you plenteous in goods, and he'll open unto you his good treasures. He'll make you the head and not the tail. You'll be making the decisions and not being, be being dragged around to others. Uh, you'll be above only and not beneath. He goes on and on. Now verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe all, uh, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and shall overtake thee. Cursed. Then he says, cursed to, to thee all these things as he goes down the line. Uh, look at verse 25. The devil shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. God says, no, I'm going to make you smitten before your enemies. Look at verse 27. The devil will smite thee with the botch of Israel. No, the Lord will smite thee with, smite thee with the botch of it. Those are boils. And with emeralds, uh, those are uh, hemorrhoids. And with the scab or scurvy and with the itch. Whereof thou canst not be healed, and the Lord shall smite thee with madness or insanity and blindness and astonishment of heart, that's heart attack, or nervous breakdowns. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper. And he says, I'm going to do that to you if you don't obey. Now, I know that in some cases this is not in the case where you, that God's going to do it directly, but it just simply means you're going to open yourself up, and he will allow it to happen to you like it was happening to those unbelievers. 
You see, I personally believe when you and I walk before the Lord in obedience that he protects us in times we don't even know we're protected. He provides for us in times we don't even know we're being provided for by him. We just think, well, this is just a natural happening. But he says, I can just remove that just as well as I can put it there. And it depends on how you and I respond. There are some people who say, Brother Webb, that's salvation by works. I'm not talking about salvation now. I'm talking about daily walk and daily provisions. I mean, God did this to the children of Israel when they're disobedient to try to bring them back. And he said, if you're my child, every son of mine is chastened be times. And if you're without chastening, then you're bastards and not sons. If you and I are not corrected by the Lord from time to time for our disobedience, that's evidence that we're not sons. It doesn't mean that we're losing or gaining our salvation. It means he's treating us like we are his children. How many of you know that I don't go around spanking Sean or Scotty or Melissa or somebody? I don't go around spanking them because they're not my children. But if they get disobedient, I imagine their daddy's good. If I'm the Lord's child and he spanks me, he has every right to spank me and to correct me. And he says, but you're going to bring it on yourself. Don't say you don't deserve it. You bring it on yourself. And it can be serious. God says that it can be severe. In the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, I'll tell you, I don't enjoy being spanked by the Lord. And that's why I always go to 1 Corinthians 11, and I go to 1 John 2. 1 Corinthians 11 says that to judge yourselves, that you be not judged. And I say, Lord, I, com I confess that was sin. That was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Cover me with the blood. I don't want that in my life. You see, I stand there and say, well, God's just going to have to put up with that man. Wow, look out. I can get the razor strap very quickly. God knows exactly where to spank. And it says in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I want you to know the Bible says very clearly that as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that what? Fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, yes, I agree with you. I come into agreement. I confess my sin to you. I agree that that was sin. Will you please forgive me? Will you cleanse me of the blood? I mean, it's under the blood that quickly. God's not going to spank us when we do that. Unless we do it presumptuously. Say, so, well, I'm going to do it real quick and I'm going to confess. See, some people think they're going to be able to pull the wool over God's eyes. I've got news for you. You're in trouble when you even think that way. i got some good news for you coming up in the next point here. This has been a real blessing to me to be studying concerning afflictions. Realize that every gift, everything that comes down from the Father of lights is good for us. I used to tell people that my father gave me a spanking every day unless I was sick. Somebody said, well, didn't he give you something you didn't deserve? And I said, yeah, he did, probably. But a lot of times he didn't give me someone I did deserve, and so they, they more than evened out. My father always spanked me because he wanted me to do right and he wanted to correct me so that I'd be the kind of child that he could be proud of. Even though I didn't enjoy the spankings, afterwards I enjoyed the fruit of it. I remember time and time again when Jody and Jeffrey would be riding in the car with us after we visited somewhere and the kids would be little terrors and they'd get in the car and they said, Daddy, we're so thankful, we're so glad that you have spanked us and you have made us behave ourselves. Those kids were brats. <laughs> and I always told them, nobody likes brats. And they said, you're right. I'm just so glad that you taught us that we couldn't get away with those things. But they didn't enjoy it when I spanked them. I want you to know that when the Lord allows things to come into our lives and it's for our good, we need to thank him in the midst of it because afterwards it will bring forth the fruit. It should bring forth the fruit that he wants for us. Once in our lives. Now let me say very quickly again that 
that the same sun that melts butter hardens petrifies wood. And you and I determine what the light of the gospel is going to do, what the word of God is going to do in our lives. If it were going to soften and melt before it and become moldable before it and pliable, or we're going to become hardened like petrified wood in the sunlight. But if we will change, you know, you see, I can show you, I'm going to be showing you here before long that when God punished the children of Israel many times, they didn't do any good, they just became harder and harder and harder. Well, I want to tell you something, that's a losing battle. There's no way you're going to win. How do you fight God? How do you fight God? That's impossible. And the scripture says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Please turn to Psalm 119, verse 71. We've been talking about good things for God's people. And the first thing we told you is the Bible says it's a good thing for God's people to draw near to God. Well, that's logical. The second thing is it's a good thing for God's people to give thanks. You need to give thanks to the Lord. It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. And then the third thing that we've been talking about now is it's a good thing to be afflicted. Psalm 119.71 says, it is, a good, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Back in verse 67 of that same chapter, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Back in verse 75, he said, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me, that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. I want you just to underscore one word in that, that thou, that the Lord hath afflicted me. Okay, that word afflicted, afflicted there actually uh, in the Hebrew means hath lowered me, hath humbled me, hath, hath put me down. That thou, O Lord. Now there will be some that will tell you that that's always the devil that does it. But the Lord allows us to have humbling times and times of, of uh, testing and trial. James speaks very clearly of that fact. And he said, don't try to squirm out of it. Don't try to wiggle and squirm out of your trials and temptations and testings, but let patience have its perfect work. So God says there's real advantages to it. Now we talked about the eight facts. We started talking about the eight facts of affliction. The first one was God determines the length of your affliction. Scripture even talked about Joseph, and I didn't bring it out before, where Joseph, after he had had this vision that his, his brothers, all of his brothers had bowed down to him, and then his mother and father had bowed down to him, it was 14 years of horrible times. He went through, he was thrown into the pit, and then he was put into prison. And it says in the Scripture that it was not enjoyable for him when his feet and his hands were in the stocks. They, were, they hurt him until God's time. God sets the times and the boundaries of our afflictions and our tests and our trials. And it's during those times that we learn to trust in the Lord with all our heart. He said he put them in the wilderness for 40 years that he might prove whether they would be faithful and trust him. The Lord took the children of Israel into captivity for 70 years because they had failed for 490 years to let the land rest for one year out of every seven. So the Lord said, I'll just take you out of the land for 70 years, and it'll have its 70 Sabbaths all at once. So God sets, determines the length of your afflictions. The second thing I said about it, that it is promised to the saints that in the world you shall have tribulation. It'll be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now, I know that we teach positive confession. I know we... 
we call, there's a lot of teaching out today about name it and claim it. I think when God's word has a promise that's for us, we can claim it. When we receive a rhema from the Lord, if the Lord speaks to us and says, I'm going to do thus and such for you, then stand on that. But we can't take somebody else's promises and, and stand on them too well. For example, how many of you would like to go down to the river or down to the, the ocean and take your mantle and hit it and expect it to separate? Now, if God spoke to you and said, I want you to go down here to the, what's this river out here? St. John's, okay, or the Wakiva River, and smack it with your coat and it'll separate. Now, if God said that to you, you can put your grocery money on that. Then you can go ahead and do it. Again, I say there are a lot of people that do religious things like walk around something seven times and feel that, that they're doing what Joshua did. But Joshua only did it one time, and he did it one time in one place, at one city, in just one battle, because God told him to do it that specific way that time. But unless God tells you to walk around something seven times, there's no spiritual power in walking around something seven times. See what I'm saying? God will tell you what he wants you to do in each specific situation. When Jesus healed, in some people, he spit on them. In others, in others he spit in his, picked up some dirt and spit in the dirt and made mud out of it and put mud on their eyes. Another time he just touched someone. It isn't what's done except we do what God tells us to do. But there are going to come trials, there are going to come tests, there are going to come afflictions. It's going to come to the saints. And in the midst of them, we can expect that God's going to show us specifically how he's going to bring us out of it. Now that's the exciting part. You know, I've always said to my children, you will never be able to go out of this house in the days ahead and have your own home and be able to say that God doesn't work miracles today because you have seen miracle after miracle after miracle take place in our home. And in each case, it was totally unique to our family. We believed God for miracles for us in our specific situation. We sought the Lord's face to see what the Lord would have us to do in each situation. Now, it was not fun going through. I can remember sometimes that I fasted as long as 17 days on liquid. 17 days. Really crying out to God, but God performed a miracle. Now, I don't enjoy going 17 days fasting. But if that's what the Lord told me I had to do and that he would work it out, I stayed right with it. I said, Lord, I'll just keep on doing it until you do what you say you're going to show me what you, what you want to do about this thing. And he, he literally worked a miracle. That is, if you feel somebody walking in and saying, here, here's a check for $15,600 is a miracle. Or at 1030 at night, somebody knock on your door and he hands you $300 and you'd been praying for $300. And they hadn't even talked to you and you hadn't seen them for days. And they just said, God just told me that I'm supposed to get this to your house tonight. That type of thing, you don't. I don't enjoy not having enough money to pay my bills. Don't misunderstand me. But it's in the midst of those times when you start listening closer to what God's saying to you. And he allows these things to, to get our attention. I don't know if you know that if everything goes just the way we want it to all the time, we don't need to trust in the Lord. It's when the hard times come that we begin to really sharpen our hearing and saying, God, what are you trying to say to me in this thing? And when it gets real tight, we say, dear God, pull the earwax out of my ears, whatever it is. If it's sin, forgive me. I mean, deliver me. I mean, show me, manifest it to me. Lord, let me see. We get serious with God when things get rough. And that's the, the next point, and that is that affliction can be severe. 
God talked about the blessings and the curses that were to take place in the land. You read those curses in Deuteronomy 28 sometime. And over in Revelation, when it talks about the tribulation saints, the trials and tribulations they're going to go through, the tribulation saints are going to have their heads cut off. How many of you want to put that on your refrigerator door and say, Lord, make me a tribulation saint? We've got it pretty easy. I was just reading a book the other, the other day I got for Christmas, started reading it, and one of the things they brought out was that George Washington, while he was praying during just before the battle when we, the Revolutionary War took place, he was praying and God gave him a vision. And he said an angel appeared before him and said, Son of the Union, listen and learn. And the Lord showed him, first of all, in a vision that there was going to be, a, that this revolutionary war was going to take place and that the United States would be established as a nation. And then that vision went away and the angel appeared again and said, Son of the Union, listen and learn. And the next thing that happened, he saw that there was this mighty nation of the United States and that the North began to fight with the South. And that the North won and went down and helped rebuild the South. And the nation became stronger than ever. And again that went away and the angel appeared to him and said, Son of the Union, look, uh, watch and learn. And he disappeared again and he saw, that all he, like he was way up above it, he could see all these mighty cities uh, all across our nation. It was very, very strong. But then he saw this this pollution come, and then all of a sudden there was a violent uh, destruction coming from over toward Europe, toward the United States. And he said the, the cities were just in total destruction. Major cities were all in total destruction. And the only ones that survived were the ones that lived out in the country and way out in the uh, farmland and in the small communities. They were the only ones that survived. And then God supernaturally intervened and redeemed or, or, or saved this nation, and it was restored again. He said, now, what, the only reason I told you this is because the Revolutionary War that he saw that vision of happened just exactly the way he saw it. And when Abraham Lincoln became our president, the, the vision that he saw of the Revolutionary War took place exactly as he had seen it take place. He said, so the only other thing we can think is it may be a third world war that we're going to have here in the United States that God's going to have to judge this nation. What did Billy Graham's wife say? Like no other nation's ever been judged on the face of the earth? Or you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness of this nation. Well, I want to tell you something. Any way you want to look at it, chances are we're going to see some horrible tribulations and tests and trials in the days ahead. And I'm trying to establish you in biblical principles to realize that that doesn't mean God has forsaken you and he's lost your address. He doesn't know your name anymore. But in the midst of our trials is when we can cry out and say, I trust in the Lord with all my heart and I'm not going to lean to my own understanding. I'm not going to look at their circumstances. He has promised me peace in the midst of the storm. That's what I'm going to stand on. So it can be severe. Now, let's go on. The fifth thing is it is bearable when we'll compare it to the glory that is to be revealed in the days ahead. Let me just go beyond that and say again that when we compare, we're always seemingly comparing ourselves with those who are better off than we. You ever notice that? Very few people go up and down the street and say, I wonder how many people have less than me. How blessed I am because I have shoes. I can see. I can hear. But rather, well, I don't have a nice big house like that. And they've got a newer car than I've got. And they've got a boat. And of course, they get to go to school. And they've got better clothes than I do. That's the way we tend to compare. 
But when you search God's word and there's persecution or tribulations or trials or tests come against the saints, they don't compare it with other people around about them. They always compare it to what is coming. Look at Acts, the 20th chapter. Acts, 